Compared with the other gospel accounts of the triumphal entry, Mark's version is a bit tamer, a bit quieter. We don't have the same sense that there are massive throngs creating a disruptive scene on the way into the city, and Jesus' arrival at the temple is decidedly sleepy. In Mark, he will not raucously overturn the tables until the next day. At this initial arrival, he simply looks around, Mark tells us, and because it's late, heads back to Bethany with the Twelve. So, though it is not as loud as some of the other Gospel accounts, Mark's story of Jesus' entry is no less calculated. If you were around this time last year, you may recall my sermon on the procession of the ridiculous, a tale of two parades heading into Jerusalem on Passover weekend. On one side of the city was the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, in a display of imperial power, domination, suppression of the festival pilgrims that were also flocking into the city at that time because of the festival. And on the other side of the city, Jesus's political street theater parody, his deliberate lampooning of the imperial powers that be. The careful orchestration of this politically subversive march is clear in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, Mark spends a lot more time describing the preparation of the action than even the action itself. This is clearly planned. And you can't help but guess or get the sense that Jesus is looking around the temple at everything is a sort of reconnaissance mission for the table-turning action that happens the next day. He's looking around. That was a wink for those of you in the back who didn't see that. (laughs) This year's I've sat with Mark's story of the entry into Jerusalem. I'm thinking about the people with Jesus, the many people who show up to spread their cloaks, and the others who spread their leafy branches. I'm thinking about those who went ahead and those who followed, all of whom shouted, Hosanna, or save us. And blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. And again, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna in the highest. I'm thinking about the many and the others of this story, the ones who went ahead or followed. I'm thinking, in other words, of the co-conspirators in this public action, this orchestrated bit of street theater. I'm thinking about those marching folks because in part, at least, of the marching that I and many of you did yesterday that we did together as we marched for our lives, led by student leaders calling for meaningful gun law reform. But also I'm thinking about those marching folks because I've been reading a captivating book by James Cone titled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Cone is a theologian professor of systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and he points out the false comparison that many white preachers have made. It's a false comparison that I myself have made many times. And I'm not bad or wrong for having made this false comparison, but I'm just on a journey and still learning. That false comparison is this, that the cross of Jesus is sort of like the equivalent of today's electric chair. 
In other words, it's a weapon of the state that's used for capital punishment. So I've said this in the past, that the cross is like the electric chair. I know that I've quipped about how, we, how tame we have made the cross, how we've turned it into a lovely bit of jewelry that we wear, wear around our necks, blithely. I know I've suggested that we shake ourselves from some of that taming that's happened over the last 2,000 years by imagining a gold or silver electric chair pendant that we hang around our necks. It's a provocative thought experiment, and it's useful, I think, in pondering just how shocking it is that followers of Jesus managed to take a symbol of torture and execution and death and reclaim it and transform it into a symbol of life and hope and faith. It's on nearly every church building that exists, instrument of torture and execution. But here's what I'm learning from Cone. The cross isn't nearly so much like an electric chair as it is like a lynching tree. And just imagine that piece of jewelry. Crucifixion, like lynching, was not state-sponsored capital punishment for a crime committed and tried, done in some backroom prison chamber, away from the public's eye. No, crucifixion, like lynching, was a state-allowed murder by a mob done way out in the open and used as a form of social control and intimidation through the public terrorizing of an oppressed group. So that folks wouldn't even dare think of resisting their own oppression or their own subjugation, lest they find themselves the next public, very public lesson hanging from a tree. Now white preachers like me have missed this obvious connection between the cross and the rope dangling from the lynching tree because my people did not experience the public terror of lynching. As Cohn writes, it has always been difficult for white people to empathize fully with the experience of black people, but it has never been impossible. And so, as a white person, I am learning slowly, slowly. Jesus was neither the first nor the last prophet crucified by the Romans. Which brings me back to those many, those others in Mark's stories, in Mark's story, the ones who either went ahead or followed, those co-conspirators in the public action, those marching folks. Their participation in Jesus' lampooning street theater was an explicit affront to the empire's power and the public terrorizing and murder of their own people. So Rome was busy publicly terrorizing them, trying to silently get them into a place of submission. To go out with their cloaks and with their palms and with their shouts of Hosanna and save us was an act of incredible bravery. As I said, Jesus wasn't the first of their prophets crucified by the Romans. Crucifixion was being used as a terrifying weapon to keep them silent and compliant. And they knew precisely what they were risking to be there, to show up. They knew exactly what sort of outcome they might expect from their public subversion. 
Now I'm going to jump a few weeks back to those poisonous snakes in Numbers. If you were here, you get the poisonous snakes a second time. If you weren't, you get the poisonous snakes. <laughs> I had the occasion to learn a new insight because some of my preaching colleagues from across the country uh, preached a similar message in their sermons, and I thought, why have I never thought of that before? I had never noticed it. So here's the new insight. When God had Moses fashion that bronze snake, and then instructed the people who had been bit by the snakes to look at the bronze snake and find their healing, that part of what was going on is that God instructed the people to look directly at the source of their fear and their terrorizing. It wasn't an accident that it was a snake that Moses had to fashion out of bronze. They had to look directly at what was killing them to hold its gaze and directly challenge its power over them, and that it was in that directly looking at the source of their fear that they found their healing. Oh, that'll preach. I'm thinking about it this week as I ponder the cross as a lynching tree and thinking about white supremacy as one of our country's original sins. It plagues us still, harming us all, and systemically terrorizing and intimidating people of color. This is not an old story. This is a very contemporary story. The school-to-prison pipeline, the prison-industrial complex, voter suppression, stop-and-frisk policies and practices, stand-your-ground laws, rampant police brutality, and the murder of black and brown children, youth, and adults by supposed law enforcement. So if white supremacy is the source of our terror, then like the bronze snake, I think our healing may only come when we face it head-on. I know this next bit is not going to be easy, and some of you are going to have to certainly engage in some follow-up conversations. I'll just say that before drawing more attention to it. But it seems imperative as one who wants to follow a Jesus who marched provocatively into Jerusalem and whose march leads eventually to the cross. As one who wants to follow a Jesus whose brown body hung from the lynching tree of his day, it seems imperative to gaze on that which is killing us. It's easy, I think, to dismiss lynching as a southern phenomenon, and therefore not ours, to distance ourselves from it, to not even think of it as our history, but it is. It is our history. And those of us in this room who are people of color likely already know this, already know this is our history. And those of us who are white in this room may need to learn that, that this is our history. Some of us grew up in other parts of the country, so that's easy enough for me. Indiana, hotbed of the KKK, for me. But even for those of you who have lived your whole life in Washington State, I want to tell you about Nathan Wesley Everest. On November 11, 1919, Nathan Wesley Everest was lynched right here in our own state of Washington. He was born in Newburgh, Oregon. Everest was a World War I veteran and a labor union worker. And listen to this bit of resonance, Mennonites. After being drafted into the Army, Everest served in Vancouver, Washington, with a division that supplied timber for the Army's building projects. And according to sources, he spent much of his time in the stockades 
for refusing to salute the American flag. Interesting, huh? On Armistice Day in 1919, a fight broke out between members of the American Legion and labor unionists in their union hall in Centralia, Washington. Six men died in that scuffle, and many more were wounded. And Everest shot and killed one of those six men who died. He shot and killed that man because he was being chased by a mob, and so he shot and killed that man in what his fellow labor unionists called self-defense. But that didn't stop the mob. The mob caught up to him, beat him, and dragged him to jail. During the evening of November 11, Everest was turned over to the lynch mob by jail guards, taken to a bridge over the Chehalis River, lynched, and then shot. The next day, his body was cut down and lay in the river bottom until sunset when his body was returned to the jail. There it lay with the rope still around his neck in full view of the labor union members rounded up after the shootings. Later, his body was buried in the pauper's graveyard and no one was charged with the crime, even though those involved in the lynching were well known to the townsfolk in Centralia. Nathan Wesley Everest. A precious black life violently taken, and yet he was only one, only one of about 5,000 black human beings lynched by white mobs, by white human beings, by white Christians, many of whom picnicked next to the bodies hanging from trees, many of whom posed for jovial photos with the lynching trees and their strange fruit. Photos that were turned into postcards that were then sent to friends and family members, often with a jaunty and horrifying note, something like, this is the barbecue we had last night. Cohn reports this chilling detail in his book, but it's also a bit of our horrible history that I've seen with my own eyes when I forced myself to take in an exhibit at a history museum in Chicago one time of these lynching postcards. So when I said that white preachers like me have missed the obvious connection between the cross of Jesus and the rope dangling from the lynching tree because my people didn't experience the public terror of lynching, that wasn't exactly true. My people, white Christians, very much experience lynching. My people, white Christians, experience lynching as perpetrators, as picnickers, as postcard senders. This is a bronze snake that I need to face head on if I have a chance of healing from the deadly venom of white supremacy. We don't in this country any longer get away with the public terrorizing and intimidation and control and subjugation of an entire people by hanging black human beings from trees, but we sure do get away with caging and killing black human beings at unprecedented and horrifically disproportionate rates. God have mercy on us all. When Jesus set his brown body on a colt 
and paraded into Jerusalem when he assembled those many and others in Mark's story, the ones that went ahead and those who followed, those co-conspirators and marching folks showed up for those, this public action. Together, this oppressed and publicly terrorized people participated in Jesus' lampooning street theater as an explicit affront to the empire's power and the public terrorizing and murder of their own people. So to go out with cloaks and palms and shouts of Hosanna, save us, was an act of incredible bravery. I can't imagine that amount of bravery. Yesterday's March for Our Lives was, oh, it was so inspiring. It was so powerful. It was so energizing. You get to see some of the beautiful art that was created for the march. Um, because Emily snagged a couple, and I asked her to bring them in so we could just incorporate them into our worship space this morning. I say yes to incredible student leadership and advocacy. I say yes to overwhelming public support of their leadership and advocacy. I say yes to being out with our signs and our Mennonites for Peace banner and our shouts of not one more and enough. It was a fabulous day. Yes, it was just like that. It was fabulous. It makes me want to dance and twirl. And... And I say yes to the questions about why this movement is getting more broad and loud support than Black Lives Matter movement of these past years. Also a youth-led movement, also marching for our lives. (sighs) Yes to continuing to gaze at that which is killing us and seeking our healing together. This year I'm asking myself more directly whether I'm ready to process and march alongside Jesus. Alongside today's crucified peoples, those who are crying out for freedom. When Adam introduced that hymn earlier, I said, man, he just did the sermon in 30 seconds. It's going to take me 15 minutes to say the same thing. Am I ready to process and march alongside today's crucified peoples, those who are crying for their freedom? The terrifying weapons to keep folks silent and compliant are still being wielded. Brown and black folks in this country know precisely what they are risking to march. They know exactly what sort of outcome they might expect from public subversion, from refusing to be terrorized into silent submission. Do I have... Do I have the bravery it will take to grab some cloaks and some palms to join the crowds marching for their lives, for our lives, and to shout my hosannas, my pleas, save us. My prayer is that I will grow more, to be able to more fully and more wholeheartedly say yes to that question. That's my prayer. It's my practice. I long for peace. I pray for peace. I choose to live for peace to say yes I want to say yes that I'm ready to join that procession may it be so friends may it be so